In this podcast, I'll be interviewing Kimberly Brown, a chemical engineer that played rugby at the University of British Columbia, who is most importantly Indigenous. In the book Towards a New Ethno History, Christopher Marsh describes how historically, sport has been used in a paradoxical fashion to assist Indigenous peoples in coping with the impacts of residential schools and cultural genocide, yet acts as a mechanism for assimilation. He goes on to share the experiences of the Stolo community on how boxing impacted their lives and the interesting role sport has played and continues to play in colonization. Much like boxing, rugby has an aggressive nature that sits amongst many narratives of toxic masculinity and heteronormativity. Yet still, it is perceived as one of the most inclusive sports out there, requiring people of all body compositions and abilities in order for a team to succeed. In this podcast, listen to Kim share her experience and shed light onto issues surrounding land acknowledgements, the medical system, grassroots rugby, and both pride and shame experienced while playing a colonial sport. This is rugby, an inclusive sport through an excluded Indigenous lens. Hi there, I have Kim Brown on the phone today. Thanks for joining me, and I'll let you introduce yourself a little bit. Yeah, thanks, Mac. Um, I'm Kimberly Brown. Um, I think it's important to acknowledge uh, right off the bat that even though we're not meeting in person, we're both talking over the phone on um, the unceded traditional territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. Um, I, myself, am of mixed um, Indigenous identity. Uh, my dad's side um, are settlers, and my mom is mixed as well, but comes from uh, the Simshian area. Uh, our reserve is called Lakolam. It's L-A-X-K-W-A-L-A-A-M-S. Um, but yeah, thanks for having me today, Mac. Yeah, no, thanks so much for joining me. And today we're going to be talking about a variety of topics, really, but I think the biggest one is kind of um, the role of Indigenous people in the sport of rugby and how participating in a colonial sport impacts your Indigenous identity. So we'll just kind of jump right in. And if you want to just give a brief background of kind of when you started playing rugby, how you got involved um, and that sort of stuff. Yeah, sure. So my, my dad has been heavily involved in rugby since he was 16 um, in high school and started and then uh, got involved with the, the experts. Um, so he ran the minis program out of Delta, uh, where we grew up for the longest time. And I started playing minis as a kid from kindergarten to grade two, I think. Um, and then I got involved with other sports like lacrosse, figure skating, and soccer. And rugby kind of wasn't on my top three interests. And I actually took a break until I was um, in a co-op year of university. So I didn't start actually playing rugby um, up until I guess I would have been around 20 or 21. Right on. Yeah, it always seems to be like a parent is usually involved in the sport for rugby because it's yeah. kind of one of those weird ones where it's kind of a niche type sport, but you usually know somebody that's involved in it. So that's quite a cool little um, little background you have there. Yeah, definitely a family sport. Right on. And um, so, yeah, we'll just jump right in, I guess. And have you felt like your like Indigenous identity has been impacted in, in the sport of rugby at all? Or do you feel like you didn't even feel comfortable like speaking about your indigenous identity in sport yeah i think that's a bit of a loaded question i would think like on a personal level like especially as a kid 
Um, you try just not to be different from everyone else, so you can hide any of your kind of racial ambiguities and just try to fit in with your peers. So for sure, as a kid, I just didn't acknowledge it. As you get older, um, you start to dive into your family history more, um, and it's obvious as you get older when people start asking you where you're from or um, what languages you speak and <laughs> yeah. you kind of just fall in this circle of well I'm actually just indigenous um, so yeah I I don't necessarily think it's impacted my indigenous indigenous identity in a negative way I've had a few positive experiences opportunities that I wouldn't have had otherwise um, through it but I also feel like in a very neutral area that it just my indigenous identity hasn't been um, acknowledged or identified in rugby. Right yeah for sure and I think that's a big one right is that I think that there's such little representation of indigenous people in the sport of rugby that it's uh, people don't even understand it and don't even know where to start I think is a big one. Yeah, I feel for sure, like, within our own age group, I've got to meet other First Nation rugby players that I, I wouldn't have got to meet if it wasn't for rugby. But I do recognize in the, the older groups uh, or, like, the national team, there's not a lot of um, I did Indigenous role models. Um, so I, I do find it's growing. Um, I know there's that program on the island as well that uh, is geared towards Indigenous um, children to join rugby, which I think is great. Um, so I definitely think it's on the rise now, but there's kind of a gap in our age group and older. Yeah, for sure. It was funny. We actually just had a meeting through Rugby Canada talking about um, anti-racist work. And I made the point of saying, well, we don't actually have anyone on the team that's um, visibly Indigenous. So there, there might be people on the team that um, have never revealed their Indigenous identity, but there's no visible Indigenous member on our national team. And that's like a huge problem, right? Like we don't have anybody that's even making it there. So how do we go back to the grassroots and, and start down lower so that we can make it more accessible to people, I think is a big one for sure. Yeah, there's definitely a lack of opportunities for First Nations to get there, I would say. For sure, and did you did you feel that um, you ever experienced that growing up or noticed anyone experienced that? Um. I don't think I would have been able to acknowledge it as a kid. I don't think I would have mm -hmm. noticed. Um, coming from a mixed family, you don't really ask questions about other people's identities as much. Like I find um, like my white friends would tend to ask those questions, but when you come from a mixed family, you just know that like, okay, my mom is dark skinned and my mom and my dad is not. Um, they're my parents and that's why my skin tone is in between them. So I don't think I acknowledged race a lot as a kid. I don't think I noticed it um, as much in other people. Um, but again, that's like a privilege of being mixed um, <clears throat> on its own. So I, I, I definitely started to notice it once I got involved with minis, um, that we were kind of operating these tri-rugby days, um, even with BC Rugby. And we reached out to local schools um, and I was the only person asking, well, why haven't we reached out to the local First Nation? Um, like, even with clubs that their fields are on unceded traditional territory of the um, local First Nation. Um, 
So there is definitely, we're introducing these sports to a bunch of kids, but if they don't hear about it from their schools, um, like these Indigenous kids, then they might not have the opportunity to come. Um, So that's what, when I started to notice that there wasn't the same levels of opportunities to even introduce the kids into the sports. Um, But that's about where I'm at so far, I think. I don't think I personally lack any opportunities. Um, For sure, yeah. Yeah, well, it's funny when you said about how, like, you don't really acknowledge race when you're a kid. And, yeah, especially being white, I would have never even thought of it. It's it's never something that would have crossed my mind. And so, yeah, I can see how, you know, as you get older, you start to realize you're like, oh, wait, you know, this is, like, not quite right. And so, yeah, yeah, I've I've never had to experience a lack of opportunity to access sport. Like, I've never experienced that. So it's just crazy to me to think that sport is not accessible to everyone. And, um, yeah, it's just especially, like, we're we're playing these sports and participating in these sports on land that's not ours. And I think that's a huge one, is that we're not even acknowledging the fact of that, like you kind of said with the land acknowledgements, is that, like, we're not even as a, as a sport, we're not even acknowledging the land that we're participating on. And then we're not even allowing access to that, those people to, to play the sport. Yeah, it's a bit of gatekeeping, mm-hmm. um, for sure. Uh, and then I think land acknowledgements are a major lack in at least BC rugby and, and in my experience in the university level of rugby when we travel to Alberta and um, across BC is that, that we don't acknowledge the land of the people that we're, we're playing our games on. Um, we, especially at, on the university level, we stand and sing the national anthem, um, which Indigenous people are not too keen to do. Yeah. I personally didn't sing it. I don't feel any connection to it. It's not my country. Um, and I find that in rugby, that's a very political statement to say. I know quite a few people who would have a lot of words with me about not wanting to see, sing the national anthem when we can't even do a, la- a land acknowledgement at the beginning of games. Yeah. And I do think that's something that should be done for sure on the university level, but not only that, on a club level. Like, if you think about all the clubs across BC, like how many of them are on unseated territory? Probably all of them. Yeah, because probably we're all of them, yeah. Right? yeah. Sure. So... I definitely think there's a lack of land acknowledgements and um, like you're saying with a grassroots, like reaching out to local First Nations, like there's there's just a general lack of relationship between rugby clubs and um, their local First Nations. For sure, for sure. And I think it's that also comes back to that like ownership bit that a lot of rugby clubs technically own the, the, the pitch that they're playing on. Um, so it's yeah. kind of like, oh, well, this is this is ours. I don't know what you're talking about because we own this. When in reality, it's not quite as black and white as that, right? So I think it's just, it comes back to that whole, yeah, that ownership bit. And like, we're not even able to be relational with people because we don't even want to open up and understand the other side of it. And like, I feel like a yeah. lot of people think that, oh, as a rugby club, it's, it's going to be like, something's going to be taken away from us in order to help Indigenous people be more well represented in the sport but I think that that's quite false and I think that's a that's a definitely a white privilege thing coming through and and the fragility aspect of it that we're just uncomfortable with even having the conversation I think is, is a big part of it yeah and like as you know rugby is a huge pay-to-play sport mm-hmm. um like there's not a lot of funding behind to get um players to national levels and I think it, it kind of shows um through the diversity of national teams is 
but if you can't afford to make it there, it, it's a lot more difficult um, to do so. So there is a, a big part of rugby well, is that if you're well off and if you're able to start playing at a young age, you're more likely to do well. And I think it's really important that BC Rugby and Rugby Canada starts to eliminate that um, by offering financial, more financial aid to people, even at the very beginning levels of rugby, to ensure that they can play. Oh, for sure. And yeah, like like you said, most people think rugby is a cheap sport, right? Like all you need is boots and a mouth guard. But in order to access it and get there, it's so much more than that. And I think when you have a group of people that have been completely like ripped of, of so much, how can you expect them to be able to, to reach those resources, right? And, it, you know, it, it, I can never speak to experiencing like a cultural genocide like Indigenous people have experienced. So I can't imagine what it's like to actually try and then access regular things, you know, and then let alone sport on top of that. So, yeah, and, and when you put so many roadblocks up, it, it makes people not want to participate. So why would somebody of an Indigenous identity want to, like, you know, they finally maybe, let's say, get through to the national team. Why would they then want to put their hands up and, and be, you know, the token person that's speaking out for Indigenous rights? So I think it's just like, it's this never-ending cycle because it's like, well, how do you how do you get that person there? And then how do you, you know, give them the voice to actually speak and, and be heard, I think is a, is a yeah. good one. Yeah, that brings up a really, another really good point that I wanted to talk about today is that there's generally like, there's a, a push to get the the indigenous people that are in rugby to get more indigenous people to play rugby, mm-hmm. and I think that's a huge flaw. We're making indigenous people do the work that they had to do themselves to get into programs. For sure, um, and it's just it's either a, like a lack of knowledge of the situation or ignorance, but. There really has to be people or club executives or coaches or people in positions of power that are doing the work and not putting it on the shoulders of Indigenous people. Um, it shouldn't be the Indigenous person suggesting to reach out to the local First Nation. That should be somebody else doing the work, making that relation. It's important to involve Indigenous people in, this, in these actions if they would like to be, but they shouldn't be the ones kind of doing the hard work absolutely like I totally agree with that I think especially when you look at the university setup too like when that's uh, oftentimes the ticket for people to carry on with rugby education's a really big like trauma for a lot of indigenous people so then you're now expecting people to go oh well come out and play rugby and, and it'll make it better because you know like you can come play rugby it's it's totally fine and you're yeah putting that onus on on indigenous people to support the indigenous community it seems a bit a bit backwards when you really break it down right and and yeah that indigenous piece in in university and in education is a huge one as well and i think we put a lot of pressure on indigenous people to yeah do the work when in reality like we need people of all backgrounds to be doing the work kind of thing yeah for sure and there's a general like we brought up the point of school is that like less indigenous people are going to leave their community to go to university. So mm-hmm. we all do have a bit of a bottleneck of getting indigenous people at that level of rugby. Um, so when they do get there, <laughs> like we shouldn't be convincing them to get more of their indigenous peers to come to university. Um, yeah. We can offer to help them in that, <laughs> but it's, 
a huge acknowledgement that like universities as a whole is a, like is a settler based education it's a colonial based education um you can take first nation studies at it but even that then we are learning settlers education and yeah. You can't find a university in the Lower Mainland um, that's Indigenous-led sure. um, or owned, for a matter of fact, I don't mm-hmm. think. Um, but it's important to acknowledge that like, a lot of people who come to universities or come to the Lower Mainland where rugby is possible, they've, they've left a lot behind. For sure, yeah. No, totally. And yeah, it's interesting because this course is obviously um, Stalo-based and Living in Abbotsford, I obviously grew up um, playing with people with um, Indigenous backgrounds, but I never would have even acknowledged it. Like, I never had any idea. And it's so interesting that it's like, oh, I, f- I feel, oh, I've been failed by the education system. Like, it's been completely whitewashed. But then you have to think, well, no, it was it was always there. I just wasn't listening and I wasn't doing the work myself. And and yeah, you can't, again, then put the onus on, on Indigenous people to be like, oh, well, teach me more about you. Like, what, like, tell me all about you. And it's like, well, we kind of intruded. So why should, why should they have to then teach us, you know? Like, it's just this interesting cycle, right? And yeah, like you said, I think a big one, too, is about, like, in education. Like, they make it so hard for people to teach education courses. Like, why do you have to have a PhD to teach someone about your own culture? It's just, yeah. it's interesting. And then they'll get people to teach a course that are white that have these qualifications instead of just actually paying somebody who's indigenous to teach the course in an indigenous setting. So which really is quite frustrating, I think for me, and I can imagine for, for you as well, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's hard to watch this kind of cycle of like reconciliation, but like, how does that, how does that look? And how do we, how do we actually, you know, attain this reconciliation without actually perpetuating colonization? Yeah, I think it's important, like, kind of what we've talked about earlier is, like, for settlers to do the work, or people with all backgrounds, I say settlers, but that doesn't particularly mean white people, I mean, settlers of Canada, uh, whether you're visiting or here to stay, um, to put in the work um, to ensure that Indigenous voices are heard, and ensure that Indigenous people are paid for their work, um, and ensure that... um, Indigenous people are present, whether that's rugby or at university. Um, and I think, especially in rugby, um, I hope that we're at the turning point of these conversations becoming more serious, involving more Indigenous people. Um, and I, there's been there's been some good things, I would say. Like I, I think the last uh, BC Sevens or the the Rugby Canada Sevens at BC Place. I mean. Um, they they had I think it was the Salelatus Nation um, do a welcoming, yeah. um, which I think is important. Um, but that needs to be done on all levels, not just for at sure. um, the big rugby sevens events. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's a consistency piece, right? It's like they'll put put the effort in when it's being showcased to a lot of people, but not on the levels when it actually matters most in that day to day. Um, kind of aspect of it which is also quite quite interesting because it's almost like a little bit of like a oh we're doing this because we know it's right or or we think it's what's right and there's lots of people watching rather than instilling things and values that that are right at the grassroots level and making it just kind of second nature rather than on these like big showcase events that's a very good point 
it, it should be a habit. Um, it shouldn't be a, a show of goodwill at a okay. rugby game. It should be happening at your executive meetings. It should be happening at your social events. It should be um, happening at team meetings. It should be happening at games. It shouldn't be a showpiece. It should be something that becomes a habit. You wake up every morning, you brush your teeth when you start a rugby activity. Um, you do a land acknowledgement. It's quick. Um, anybody can do it. Um, I think what's important to note, um, which a lot of, I think the rugby community doesn't know or doesn't understand, is that there's a difference between a land acknowledgement and a welcome to a territory. Um, If you're welcoming someone onto your um, traditional territory, that should be done by a First Nation person of that nation. Um, And if you're doing a land acknowledgement, anyone can do it. There's tons of resources where you can look up what, which unceded territory you're on. I think it nat- it's nativeland.ca um, where you can do that and anybody can do that. So yes. it, it doesn't even have to be the same person um, at every social event or executive meeting or whatever it is. Um, it should be something that is at least started off. It's a good way to start every every meeting, so to speak. Yeah, for sure. And like you said, like there's so many resources out there and it's actually so easy. And no, it's not going to fix the systemic issues but it at least is a stepping stone and it, it helps people feel seen and heard and welcome in that space for sure. So it's definitely a big one. Um, we're just going to switch kind of gears a little bit and just talk a little bit more about like your um, identity as a woman in sport. Like, have you felt that being a woman in sport has impacted you as well? Kind of that intersectionality aspect where not only your indigenous identity, but your, your identity as a woman. Um, yeah, this one's a tough one. I get this question a lot, and I think there's a big <laughs> acknowledgement to put here is that I'm a second rower who's <laughs> six foot and 200 pounds. Yeah. Like I, I, I feel like I don't get questioned yeah. by men playing rugby, like especially in like club atmosphere or even at a university level. Like There was no... like. There was no doubt that I couldn't keep up with the men's team, um, so to speak. Uh, Like, I know on a club level, I practice with the men's team sometimes when the women's team wasn't practicing. Um, And I I kept up, but I don't think I was treated any differently from that. But I do acknowledge that, um, let's say, a a winger might not get that same respect um, from from the men's team. Um, Yeah, so... I think in terms, it's a bit, yeah, that's a loaded question, (laughs) I think. Um, I I would say personally, I don't think so. On some level, it must have affected my level of sport. I I do know that um, women tend to be more sexualized um, in the sport of rugby. Um, But... Yeah, I think I'm going to leave my answer at that. Yeah, no, that's totally fair. I think it's interesting that you mentioned the point of, like, the way you described yourself is, is, I guess, more dominant, a more dominant human. And I totally feel the same way, is that, like, I'm I'm not a small human at all, so I never really feel intimidated in a lot of situations. Um, But it's interesting that, yeah, like, in order to, like, feel that way, we actually have to be, like, physically bigger. Physically <laughs> is, large. Like, yes. physically masculine. Yes. Yes. And, like, when I go into regular social settings, I often feel, I look around and I'm like, whoa, I'm, like, I'm, like, the biggest person in this room. Like, this is really weird. And then I go into a rugby setting and it's totally, like, normalized. And I'm like, oh, I'm actually 
on the smaller end. Like, you know, it's like, it's interesting the way that like we perceive the world in terms of body image as well in sport. I think that plays a big role into to young people in sport as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point to be made. I know like personally, Simshin, like uh, people are known to be like tall and lanky. Um, generally, like if I go to a First Nations event, people can point out that I'm Simshin to start. Yeah. Uh, but but I, do, I do notice the that uh, being like a woman in rugby, you have you grow this like group of people that are are all muscular, are all athletic, and honestly, there's just like a lack of body issues. Like yeah. everyone has some sort of comfortableness with their body, and they know how it works. They know how to use it, um, especially in like physical terms. For sure. So you get this like really uplifting community that's muscular strong confident um like a great group of friends to have around um and i think the indigenous aspect in there um like with me it helped with my indigenous identity like yeah. um it made me feel more comfortable being tall like a lot taller than the average woman because i was around a lot of taller women um so it, there's definitely some intersectionalities that that play together there, um, but I, I hadn't acknowledged that before. But I do think it has made me feel a bit more comfortable um, with my body being around um, these big, strong women for the past five years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely, it definitely changes you. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right on. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, we'll just kind of keep carrying on here. I think we're getting to into some good stuff. Um, so if we can just go into the whole, um, I guess, the racism and stereotyping into sport, I think this one's a pretty, um, can be a pretty traumatizing subject. So if, if at any point you feel uncomfortable sharing anything, like just feel free to, to stop. Um, but yeah, have you ever experienced any sort of racism or stereotyping in sport specifically? Yeah, I think this is like a very um, relevant subject, especially with the recent BLM movements, Mm -hmm. um, which are very similar to RLM movements, I'd like to say, which is Red Lives Matter. Um, So a lot of these play hand in hand. Um, I would say like the stereotypes in rugby are are quite large. I've had a few comments that were supposed to be jokes um, or just instances that always just didn't make me feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been asked like, like, oh, do a war cry, or like, aren't you used to going to war, or, um, or some other ones that I've got, or I've, ha- I've had someone in the change room pass me a bottle after a game that was in a brown bag, um, stuff like that that just didn't yeah. make me feel comfortable, or it, it, it was inappropriate, um, and I think the big thing to acknowledge um, in rugby now is that there's some level in club rugby especially of like it's okay because this is our family mm-hmm. um the comments aren't addressed as sternly as they should have there's usually gray areas in their code of conducts yeah. um a lack of social media policy mm-hmm. um where people are allowed to say um anti-blm or anti-rlm movements uh on social media or in person and get away with it i don't think our clubs or even at university level or provincial 
um, level are holding players accountable to their words and actions as sternly as they should have. Um, because I think a rugby, and this is like an important thing because rugby stresses this all the time, is they always say like, this is a sport for everyone. Mm-hmm. This is a sport for every gender, every sexuality, every, every race. Well then all those microaggressions cannot occur. Okay. Um, so I do think there's kind of a, a lack that most people don't see in that um, in the rugby community, we're not addressing microaggressions enough um, because then, yes, like especially indigenous people are not going to feel comfortable there. And I do start to wonder is like if these lack of land acknowledgements, uh, like lack of inclusion to the sport are why there are not more indigenous people playing the sport. For sure. Yeah. I think, I mean, it all comes into play, right? It's like a puzzle and each little piece has a big impact overall. And, and people might not think, oh, well, this land acknowledgement, that doesn't really, that doesn't really fix anything. Why are we doing it? But it's also plays into the bigger picture of things. <clears throat> and um, yeah, I think it's interesting when you talk about, you know, somebody passing you a bottle in a brown bag and drinking is such a big portion of rugby. And it's, it's instilled almost in the values of the games is to, is to have some sort of alcoholic beverage before, after, whatever, at the socials. So I think it's, you know, that plays massively into the stereotype of Indigenous people just being drunks, and which is a stereotype we've given. And, you know, as settlers, we introduced alcohol into their in, into the culture. So it's like, why why do we kind of perpetuate that through rugby? And I think it's a, it's a really easy one to do because yeah. it's so accessible and it's so a part of, and like prevalent in the sport. And like you said, having that concept, oh, well, everyone's included it's rugby, we're all family, it's all just a big joke, when in, in reality that's not, and that has huge, huge implications on people, for sure. Yeah, and I, like the point about um, the family kind of aspect is that it, it's similar to a family at home. If you have a racist uncle or a racist aunt that says something, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, let it slide, they're family. And I think rugby is too much like that Mm -hmm. Um, because you have a bunch of people uh, particularly people who are not of any sort of minority who show up and say well oh rugby's great like I feel at home here Um, but they're not the ones affected by slurs or microaggressions um, that sometimes they're the ones making Um, so there's a bit of like blindness going on in the community of like rugby of um, what's appropriate to say And then secondly, like the big point about um, the drinking in rugby is like personally, I have to watch drinking because I'm Indigenous and I don't want to get stereotyped more than I already have been in the past. Whereas if I were completely white, um, I wouldn't have to worry about that so much. Yeah, no, for sure. there's a big push to drink in rugby all the time. And don't get me wrong, I will once in a while, but I don't want to fall into a stereotype that my family and past generations have fought so hard to get out of. For sure. And you're constantly aware of that. Whereas, you know, somebody who's white or of a settler background does not have to even think twice about that. And I think that's a huge one. It plays a huge role into the rugby and feeling welcomed and, and included for sure. Um, well, recently the, there is a study done on how Indigenous people were treated in healthcare, and I think anyone who plays rugby can note the fact or acknowledge the fact that 
you spend a well amount of time in the doctor's office or physiotherapy. Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I broke I, I broke my hand a few times while playing at the university level, and um, one of the parts that still bothers me, um, like years later, was how I was treated in the medical system at times. Um, either when they figured out that I was indigenous through. Um, indigenous apparel that I was wearing or wearing moccasins or um, uh, when talking about treatment payments with like First Nations Health Authority, um, it comes up on your file that you're indigenous. And I had a few questions about painkillers and if I actually required them. Um, So the first time that I broke my hand, uh, the screws weren't um, installed properly and were causing microfractures whenever I was trying to do um, recovery in, um, it was like hand physiotherapy essentially where they tried to get movement back in my hand. Um, so it was, it was basically slowly fracturing my hand more and more as I did it. Um, and when I requested more pain meds, I found that I was questioned more um, than I should have been and addiction was brought up Um, which is a fair and valid statement, but a big part of me knew it was because I was Indigenous um, that it was brought up. So my hand ended up breaking again because of all the microfractures that were happening after the first one from the screws not being installed properly. And when I broke it the second time, the, the surgeon asked if I could do it without pain meds. Um, so to avoid all the like difficult conversations um that I had prior to that I just said like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna use any pain meds and we talked about using a medical marijuana card instead um because I didn't want to have to vouch my pain levels um to another doctor again I didn't want to have to try to explain the amount of pain I was and part of me believes that it is due to the fact that indigenous women's pain especially is not um acknowledged um I find similar to probably um like black women on hospitals their pain is often not as acknowledged as painful as what a white woman's pain experience would be yeah um and then on the indigenous side you get the questions about addictions like is this the best treatment for you if you're going to get addicted to it kind of thing Mm -hmm. um so it's not directly related to rugby but rugby does cause injuries it causes you to go into the healthcare system um if you're someone who's never had an injury in rugby i would say you're probably one of the rare ones yeah definitely. So, unicorn um, it is one more added step um of things that indigenous people have to worry about in rugby is going through the healthcare system that recent study that just got released said that 82 percent of all first nations have been discriminated against when they enter the healthcare system yeah um so i really think it's important that when indigenous people are hurt in rugby that you do have um, a teammate or a coach um, or a trainer or your team doctor vouching for your pain and your experience um because unfortunately it's not going to be heard from um the indigenous player themselves yeah, for sure. And then that just snowballs into, you know, like missed time off work and things like that and the financial repercussions and the and the physical and emotional 
trauma that comes after having an injury as well and the lack of support there for Indigenous people too is a huge one. Like how do you recover from something when you can't even get medical access so then you're in physical pain and then you're missing work and it's just, it perpetuates this this horrible cycle. And I know personally, like when I had ankle surgery, I woke up and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm in a ton of pain and, and they, they gave me pain meds right away. I didn't have to ask twice. So it's, you, you can't say that, you know, being an indigenous person doesn't have an impact that that's just completely completely naive i think it's it's huge it's a huge part of it and a huge part of sport is is getting medical attention and, and being comfortable and knowing that you can walk into a door where you're supposed to be getting help and know that you'll get help and i think that that's a huge stress um when you when you don't think you're going to get the right care so i can imagine yeah i i think it's super important to acknowledge that like me and you for example have probably had similar um levels of rugby injuries requiring mm-hmm. surgery probably both of our moms were there with us yeah and i think one of the most poignant parts to point out is that when your mom was sitting there with you your mom was white and doctors would listen to her more likely than they would listen to my indigenous mom who's dark-skinned absolutely um, and it's it's important to note even if my mom were to go to the doctor I often encourage my white dad or I will go with her because we are whiter and receive a better form of care than she does. Yeah, Um, totally. So it's a bit more explaining on the indigenous aspect. If I, if I get checked into a hospital or something, my mom has to explain that it's a rugby injury. Like, unless it's blatantly obvious that I come in in my rugby gear or like if I come in with my rugby sweater on kind of thing, everyone's going to know how I broke my hand. But if not, there's more explaining that has to be done um, on our ends. Yeah, for sure. And that's, that's a pretty scary thing to think about is that, you know, you're, yeah, like I said, you're going to a place where you're supposed to be getting care. And that should be the last um, thing on your mind is about whether that person stood in front of you is going to believe you. Right. So yeah, yeah, that's a pretty, pretty scary thing. And it's a, it's a, it's a reality for so many people, uh, especially in Canada and BC and and with free healthcare, you know, we assume, Oh, Canada, that doesn't happen here. Like, and I think especially in Canada on all fronts, um, we feel like we have this immunity to racism and this, this, Oh, you know, we're, we're attached to the States and there's so much worse and things like that. But in reality, there's so many systemic racism issues in Canada, like massively. And I think we, we tend to, to turn a blind eye to it for sure, um, which is, is pretty disappointing, but yeah. Cool. Yeah, we're not a lot better than the States. Yeah, no, when you when you really break it down, uh, yeah, I've, I've learned through a lot of my courses this semester especially, um, yeah, there's a lot of pretty, pretty dark spots um, in history, that's for sure. Okay, so we'll just um, kind of change over onto the other aspect of your life, which is the field of engineering. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about how you decided you want to become an engineer? It's not a glamorous story. <laughs> <laughs> my, my brother, I was in grade uh, probably nine or ten, and I thought I was going to work um, for the government of some sort. Some sort. I took um, French immersion um, in elementary school, and I thought it would be uh, a good opportunity uh, to work for the Indigenous, if, uh, as an Indigenous person for the government, um, and spoke both English and French. I was like, that's a for sure. Um, didn't really think much about what I wanted to do. Um, I had an aunt uh, who worked 
um, as a border patrol agent and was like, well, why don't you try going to the gun range? Um, see if you want to go that, that route. Shot a gun and hated it. Um, so that was about in grade 10. Um, just didn't like having something in my hand that I knew could take someone's life. Um, <laughs> and I was back at, uh, back beginning wondering what to do um, after high school. And my brother had recently gone to UBC for um, engineering. Um, and I've pretty much done everything that my brother did. Um, so I did the same. I went to I went to the University of British Columbia, not really knowing what engineering was. Um, did my first year in general. Ultimately picked chemical engineering, um, which to those of you who don't know what chemical engineering is, just basically uh, any process um, that produces a product. Um, so there's really two routes to go is, well, there's more than two, but the biggest two are kind of um, oil production or water. Um, with my Indigenous background, I didn't see going into oil as very kosher um, to my heritage. Um, it's a bit problematic. So I went the water route. I'm now a junior water engineer in training um, after five years at UBC, where I also played rugby there. Um, and that's how I ended up where I am now. I'm at a small um, uh, engineering firm that specializes in water um, in BC. Um, so I do a predominantly First Nation work, probably about 50-50 um, of water treatment design and also asset management facilitation and training. Yeah, so uh, you said you're in a small firm. Do you, are you one of the only Indigenous people at that firm? Uh, no, we have quite a few. We have a handful, I would say. A handful is a more appropriate term. Um, but we do have probably four or five um, other Indigenous people at our company. Right, cool. So uh, in a lot of your field work, are you out interacting with people um, on Indigenous like territories, like on reserves, things like that? Yeah, half and half. Um, so I do, I do do asset management field work where you go to a community and record everything, all assets that they own. That's road, buildings, uh, drainage, sewage, uh, storm infrastructure, um, recreational items such as like uh, fields, um, BMX tracks, uh, and then cultural items like longhouses, totem poles. Um, is basically just an inventory of all their assets. Um, so I do work um, a lot on reserves uh, for those jobs. And then my other half of field work is more municipal jobs um, around Metro Vancouver. Right. So that's interesting, hey, because you are basically right in the thick of it in terms of like that relational piece and, and being able to see the interactions between our local governments and our local Indigenous population. So that's pretty interesting. Have you found anything um, that's really stuck out to you about it? Um, generally speaking, the, the big key thing um, that's kind of upcoming now is um, more and more nations are gearing towards self-governance. So a lot mm -hmm. of them in their vision statements and vision plans or um, goals, so to speak, it's either within five to ten years, um, uh, obtain their own self-governance plan. Um, so there's a lot of really cool stuff going on um, with a few nations um, uh, that I think um, are important conversations that they should be having with the government of Canada. 
to become their own self-governing nations. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, more and more that's going to be happening. So uh, your your um, driving routes in BC might start to change a bit, as in <laughs> you're in technically in Canada for one section and then all of a sudden um, in a First Nation nation now um officially um Mm -hmm. so i think that's exciting um it gives indigenous people more rights to lead their land and people um how they want to and how they more have traditionally done so um so i think that's important um in the upcoming uh years here in bc especially for sure, yeah, and that's cool how you're involved kind of right in the middle of it, which is great, and, and you know, obviously water, like, that's, it's, a ne- like, a necessary product for life, like, you can't live without it, and so, and I think a lot of Indigenous people struggle to even access clean water, right, so that's a, a pretty cool position to be in, in terms of um, being able to work kind of hands-on and, and, and really make an impact in that, in that area, for sure. Yeah. Cool, so we'll just kind of loop back up to, to rugby here, and just talk about, um, kind of rugby being a colonial sport and coming from a country which historically has colonized well everyone pretty much everyone so um yeah like what are your thoughts around that and and playing a sport that is is a colonial sport yeah this this is one is interesting enough because um as you know i'm mixed so on my dad's side we're directly from england Mm -hmm. um and his side of the family um has always identified Uh, with England we've gone to England and met family members and um, all of that and then on my mom's side we're from uh, Lacroix which is about 30 kilometers north of Prince Rupert Um, so it's a a bit of a mixed feeling for me Um, uh, part of me is proud to be playing rugby um, and then my dad played rugby and it's been a big part of his his life Um, and then Another part of me, especially with my background, is that I've, I've played other sports. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've played lacrosse, which is um, an Indigenous sport. Yeah. Um, and I, I think one of the bigger things to notice is that I did have more Indigenous um, teammates when I was playing lacrosse than, than I did at, uh, during rugby. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's uh, an important thing to note, is that in lacrosse you had Indigenous role models. So if you went to the BC Hall of Fame for lacrosse, um, there was Indigenous people there. Uh, my grandfather had um, relatives who played lacrosse for the New West Salmon Bellies, just like I did. Um, there was more of a history and connection to the sport um, mm-hmm. than I feel with um, rugby, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a similar feeling because my dad played, um, but there's a lot of a different feeling um, in lacrosse when you know that like your ancestors um, like well beyond my grandfather were playing lacrosse than in rugby where I know well my dad played rugby yeah um, for sure. yeah so it, it's a bit tougher <laughs> because I'm mixed to answer this question um, but I I can imagine that there are some feelings of resentment um, to play a sport that you never had the same opportunities to get into um, and that were that was essentially brought over when um, English settlers came to Canada. Yeah, for sure. And a big wake up call for me too was actually moving to England and and realizing the lack of knowledge there. Like they have no concept really of colonization and and their impact globally. 
And I remember uh, last summer, my my old roommate came over and we were driving through Stanley Park and she's like, what is that? And I was like, what do you mean? What is that? And she's like, that giant thing. And I was like, a totem pole? And she was like, yeah, like I've never seen that before. And I was like blown away. I was like, what? Like you've, you have just no concept about about your global impact, which is crazy. And, and, you know, she's a very intelligent person and, you know, she, she cares and yeah, it's crazy. It just, it, they have no concept of it. So I think it's an interesting one when, especially playing on the national team, when we travel to colonial countries, um, the impact that has on indigenous people. And I think that, yeah, we have such a lack of people already on the team that for some people that might be a traumatizing experience is, is traveling to a colonial sport where they're visibly so very different. And, and the, the team that we're playing against has no concept of their culture or their identity, I think is, is crazy yeah, to me. a huge issue in rugby, not only in Canada, but South Africa, mm-hmm. um, New Zealand, Australia. Yeah, for sure, uh, a resonating um, a feeling there, for sure. Um, yeah, for sure. I think also it links back up to that kind of... Um, that concept of rugby being a sport for everyone and um, when in reality it's a sport for most. Um, and yeah, and I think the big thing about Canada and maybe the lack of awareness in England is that like there is so much propaganda used to mm-hmm. get um, Europeans to come to North America. For sure. Um, you know, like if you look at the posters that were originally um sent out to encourage people to move here it was the promise of free and empty land yeah um so a lot of settlers have this guilt but they were ultimately tricked into it they had no idea of where they were moving or who they were displacing when they got here um which is the case for some but i'm sure others were well aware or didn't care um Mm -hmm. but i think it's it's important to note that um a lot of these issues were swept under the rug Um, and it's just in part kind of true probably about how rugby got here is that you had this mass influx of European settlers who were promises free land and just started pushing indigenous people to more remote or smaller and smaller reserves Um, and in that aspect there was probably some rugby fields developed Um, So I do think it's important that rugby starts to acknowledge that the building of their pitches um, ultimately in some form did displace indigenous people, um, especially in Canada, um, which which is what I'm most knowledgeable of. Um, And here in BC, a lot of our fields are on unceded um, territory. Mm -hmm. Um, I could name a few, but I won't, but (laughs) (laughs) um, it's, it's fairly easy to think of some off the top of your head of which I'm sure um, that nation would love to get their land back. For sure. Um, and is that something that um, you think is probably a good solution is, is actually the whole land back um, movement? Or yeah, is it not I'm trying as simple to think of that? like in a, in, a, in a rugby community how we could do that. If you think about reserve systems as a whole, it was usually displacing indigenous people that lands that nobody else wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's even history of completely um, moving First Nations, like almost cities away or all the way up north to this area of land that they could have instead. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a big part of reparations is we can do these land acknowledgements, um, but 
if they continue just to be acknowledgements, they're kind of start to become empty words. Yeah, for sure. Um, we have confined Indigenous people to small reserves um, with often not great livable situations. Mm -hmm. The housing situations are usually not ideal. Um, assets are falling apart. Um, there's a soccer field that nobody uses because Indigenous Services Canada thought it would be good to implement one. Right. Um, so, yeah, I do think land back has some... Um, value to it that I don't think a lot of settlers want to hear mm -hmm. um, but I really think it's about talking with the local First Nations on what that means mm -hmm. um, maybe if you do have a rugby rugby fields or rugby facilities that you develop a relation with the local nation and you invite like encourage and invite their kids to play um, maybe paying part of their fees because um, we all know those can be expensive mm -hmm. uh, rugby is big pay to play but maybe it's also offering your fields to a sport of their choice when you're not using it. Mm -hmm. um, it's developing these relationships um, so that Indigenous people have the same access to your facilities that you do, um, and which might not always be the case. So I do think building those relationships and offering like working partnerships um, is important. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think, yeah, like you said about the kind of empty words, that's kind of where I'm at with the land acknowledgements. I just find that a lot of people will just read a script because they know it's it's what they've been told to do. And for me, there's there's no meaning behind that for a lot of um, a lot of settlers. And I think that um, there has to be some sort of action that comes after that. And I think in rugby at the moment, like like you said, we're not even at the point of having the land acknowledgements consistently happening. So that is a stepping stone. Um, but there has to be some sort of action and some sort of um, relationship building um, at the very minimum, in my opinion. And yeah, land back for me is a huge one. I think that that's, that's super vital. Like even being on campus at UBC here, um, they've just given a, a portion of um, the campus back and it's like the farthest sliver away from the center of campus. So it's it's about that as well as looking at the land that's actually be give, being given back. Like you said, kind of like we look at the reserves and things like that, and it's it's not always the best situation even. So actually making making a plan that's gonna gonna include Indigenous people on on what land is being given back and what's being done with it for sure. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I think that's um that's all on my end. Was there anything else that you wanted to mention today? no I don't think so amazing well I thank you so much for participating in this um, it was so great to talk to you and I think you brought up some really good points that I'm definitely going to take away and, and do a little bit more research on and and yeah it's just been great to, to catch up with you and talk all things rugby yeah thanks for having me Max that was great yeah awesome Albert Sonny McKelsey in The Power of Place The Problem of Time states how important it is to analyze how the government economics, and religion have been used to divide Stolo identity and make certain ideas and beliefs more important than others, those that were the most agreeable to colonizers. Rugby and sport are no different, so I challenge all those listening today to move past empty words or Instagram posts and actually do the work. Analyze the institutions you spend so much time in and the impact they have on our Indigenous friends, family members, and those who've been left to pick up the pieces of years of cultural genocide. Rugby can give so much and bring so many people together, but we cannot forget the impact playing a colonial sport can have. And there is so, so, so much more work to be done. 